Farmers are the heartbeat of rural America. Congress recently invested $20 billion in America's farmers and ranchers, focusing on conservation practices and profits for future generations. Today, these funds are at risk. You're squawking over $20 billion. That USDA program, it's investment into the future for everybody. If the funding was eliminated, it could hurt farms and families. Tell Congress, protect this generational investment in the Farm Bill. Learn more at investinourland.org. Paid for by Invest in Our Land. And we hear a lot about the swamp in this state. We tend not to follow what outsiders tell us to do. The state motto is we dare to defend our rights, and it's, it's, we live it every day here. Hey everyone, welcome to the Nerdcast. I'm Scott Bland, and today we are heading to Alabama, where there's a big Senate primary coming up on Tuesday, July 14th. Voters are going to pick which of two Republicans will go on to face Democrat Doug Jones in November. And remember, we're talking about Alabama, so he's a very vulnerable Democrat, probably the Senate's most vulnerable Democrat. On one side of the Republican primary to take him on, there's Jeff Sessions. Remember him? He's the former attorney general. He wants his old Senate seat back. And now, in a past time, something like this would have been a slam dunk for someone like Sessions. But... A lot has happened in the last few years. President Trump has fired Jeff Sessions as attorney general. He now says making Jeff Sessions attorney general was a mistake. It would appear that the president has a Sessions obsession. And it turns out there's a political newbie in town who's surprisingly, or maybe not so surprisingly, depending on on your perspective on the whole saga, is beating Sessions in the polls by a couple touchdowns, actually. This is Tommy Tuberville, who is angry beyond His name is Tommy Tuberville. He's a former football coach. And in Alabama, that's a very big deal. He is a very well-known commodity in a state that prizes football and football coaches. Joining me from Birmingham is Eric Velasco, a freelance journalist who reported on this race for Politico magazine. He's been talking to voters to figure out what we can expect to see on Tuesday. And it does not look great for Sessions. They want a novice. They don't want somebody who has been in the Senate for 20 years, at least a lot of the voters I talk to. Well, I guess starting off, Eric, can you introduce yourself? Uh, Tell us a little bit about yourself. I'm Eric Velasco. I'm a freelance journalist based in Birmingham, Alabama. And what are things like in Birmingham right now? Um, Very COVIDed down. (laughs) We've got face mask ordinances going countywide. So we've been lockdown and to various degrees since March 16th. Birmingham is actually one of the uh, few places that I've traveled to uh, for reporting. It's a beautiful city. Is uh, is Saw's Barbecue uh, surviving the, oh, yeah. the, the various lockdowns? That's good. Yeah. <laughs> good, good. So, Eric, next Tuesday, July 14th, it's the Republican Senate primary runoff in Alabama between uh, Jeff Sessions and Tommy Tuberville. And Tuberville is not someone who's who's ever been not only in politics, but kind of anywhere around politics, really, until he declared his candidacy last year. But he is far from a nobody in Alabama. Can you tell us, can you introduce the character a little bit? That's absolutely true. Tommy Tuberville was the coach of the Auburn Tigers football team for 10 seasons, including one which they went undefeated. And so he is a very well-known commodity in a state that, 
prizes football and football coaches and what they bring to the table in general. So he came in with a lot of name recognition and a lot of respect even among the Alabama fans. You know, Alabama-Auburn's the big rivalry, and he managed to beat Alabama six years in a row in the season-ending Iron Bowl. So there's at least a begrudging respect for him. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, hard to, I mean, there's a lot of different ways people jump into politics, but it's hard to think of a, a better match between a, a profession and a, and a state if you're going to try and make that leap. And as far as being a political novice goes, I mean, that's really, I think, an advantage he has in this election because so many people are just tired of career politicians. They want change. And that was a lot of Donald Trump's appeal back in 2016 when 62 percent of the state voters voted for Trump. That's a great point. And then, of course, on the other side of this runoff, there's Jeff Sessions, Trump's former attorney general and the former senator trying to trying to get his old seat back. And his conservative politics and hard right positions on immigration and other issues, it really worked for him in Alabama for for decades where he was he was the guy. He was the most popular politician in the state, right? Absolutely. Never faced a primary challenger. But now he's in this scrap. He's really the underdog in this scrap, right, for his old seat. What happened? Well, what happened was the the issues that came up with the president, all the criticism about his recusing and a general distaste among voters for that recusal decision back in early 2017. And that's when he was attorney general, right? And he he stepped away from the investigations into Russian interference in the election, which which of course infuriated Trump. Yeah. and, And ultimately led to Robert Mueller's appointment and all that followed after that. A lot of people I've talked to have blamed Jeff Sessions for the issues that came up after that. And it's the problems the president had with with Congress, especially with the House. Absolutely. I mean, and it's it's remarkable, too, because Sessions played such a, a pivotal role in Trump's rise to the presidency. It's part of the reason he became attorney general. He was the first one to confer legitimacy on Donald Trump, the candidate. He did a lot to shape Donald Trump, candidate Trump's policy planks, and then ultimately policy. Jeff Sessions' communications director became the chief architect. Stephen Miller became the chief architect of the immigration policies within the administration. Yeah, I mean, these are very much some politicians who were kind of tied at the hip for for a few years until suddenly they weren't. And now that's, that's obviously it's causing Sessions some significant problems as he tries to mount a comeback. Yes, I think so. There was some question when he finally resigned in 2018 from the attorney general's post, whether he was just going to ride off into the sunset, go to a think tank, become a professor, whatever. But, uh, you know, it always was held out in the back of people's mind that he might try to get this seat back. He he was so popular for so many elections, but it's a completely different time now. Yeah. I mean, just the fact of a, a former attorney general running for his old... I mean, the, you know, some cabinet posts are kind of stepping stones to a, a statewide office or something like that. But I can't think of too many examples of, a, you know, an, an attorney general, secretary of state, defense secretary, you know, that level of cabinet official trying to then go back and run for Senate again. It's It strikes me that maybe if he had left the Department of Justice out the front door instead of the back, if he hadn't been essentially fired by Trump, 
he might not be doing this right now, but there's, and this is maybe just me projecting, but it seems like there's a desire to write a different final chapter to his career. I wouldn't be surprised if that was the case. Certainly, if he had had a successful run as attorney general, that would have been a great cap to his career. Yeah, he was seen something of an uh, as something of an outlier when he was a U.S. senator because of his extreme hardline positions on criminal justice, on immigration. And so the fact that he was able to go in and change around a lot of the Obama era policies within the Justice Department, it would have been the great ending to a long career. So obviously Trump's Trump has been kind of the, the main character in, in these last few years of, of Sessions' career, and the fact that he is still angry with Sessions, has endorsed against him, clearly playing a, a, a big role in, in what's going on in the race. But you also mentioned there's some other factors at, at work here that are that are working against Sessions and, and maybe in, in Tuberville's favor. Yeah, it's a, they want a novice. They don't want somebody who has been in the Senate for 20 years, at least a lot of the voters I talk to. And so that's been, they don't want career politicians. I think there was a perception of Jeff Sessions because of his recusal being part of the swamp. Mm. And we hear a lot about the swamp in this state. So it's kind of all wrapped up yes. a little bit. The Trump stuff and maybe the, the recusal and, and this bad feeling toward career politicians, that's all kind of wrapped up in each other. Right. And the, we're a peculiar state when it comes to things like endorsements, though. We tend not to follow what outsiders tell us to do. You know, the state motto is we dare to defend our rights, and it's it's we live it every day here. <laughs> you know, in 2017, in the special election to replace Jeff Sessions in the Senate, President Trump endorsed losers in both the primary and in the general election. So his endorsement alone is not really enough to sway people. What, what are the latest polls saying as we head into primary day? The latest poll that was an outside poll was in early May, and it showed Tommy Tuberville with a commanding lead, 20, 23 points. There have been some internal polling lately that has shown it as a closer race, but I think everything's still pointing to Tommy Tuberville. Mm. Yeah, I guess a lot of time for things to change, but also, you know, all the factors you mentioned stacked up against Sessions there. But he he does have that big name. I mean, who's still with him? What's the, I imagine more or less everyone who's voting in a Republican primary in Alabama is a Trump supporter. So, you know, how, how are his supporters and how is Sessions navigating the fact that Trump is certainly no longer on his side? I guess Sessions is kind of trying to argue he's still on Trump's side. Exactly. I think every candidate in the Republican side of this election has tried to outdo each other on, on how much they support President Trump and will be successful in carrying out his agenda. Jeff Sessions among them. He continue to praise the president and praise his policies despite the criticism. The one time that Jeff Sessions pushed back against the president, he sent out a, a tweet in response to the president that basically said, you're damn lucky I, I did my recusal because that's what led to your exoneration. Mm. But that's about the harshest thing he's had to say. I mean, it's a, it's almost an amusing split screen at times of Trump raging against Sessions on Twitter and Sessions uh, praising him back, basically. Yeah, it's it's been it's been interesting to see. But, you know, I don't think he's so much a lapdog, though, as a true believer. Mm. Despite everything he's seen, you know, both directed at him and also as, as someone with kind of a front row seat to the, the various 
uh, elements of dysfunction that plague the White House. Well, yeah, notwithstanding the president's criticism of him, otherwise this has been the philosophy he's, he's followed during his entire time as a state attorney general, as a U.S. attorney in the Mobile area, and then as a senator. Yeah. So, Eric, you mentioned uh, a little bit ago, we should circle back to it. I mean, the whole reason that this competitive race for the Republican nomination is happening is because Sessions moving into the cabinet, uh, becoming attorney general, set in motion this crazy series of events that resulted in Alabama electing a Democrat to fill his seat in a special election uh, for the first time in, what, a quarter century, I think. Right. And that's Doug Jones, former U.S. attorney uh, himself, who beat Roy Moore in that incredible, bizarre 2017 race. And now he's still he's a Democrat in Alabama. He's probably the most vulnerable Democrat in the Senate up in 2020 by a long shot. No matter who wins this primary, do they enter that race against Jones as a favorite, just considering the Republican lean of the state? Well, definitely, especially with Donald Trump at the top of the ticket. This state is one of the few that allow straight ticket, straight party voting. And it's it's up to two-thirds of voters that press that Republican-only or Democrat-only button. So it is very easy and very conceivable that even if Jeff Sessions were on that ticket, that people would vote for Donald Trump and vote for Jeff Sessions. Yeah, I mean, it took some pretty serious allegations about Roy Moore's uh, actions with uh, teenage girls in the past for Jones to be able to eke out a narrow win on top of a lot of other complaints people had had about about more uh, over the years whether he had misused his position as chief justice and of uh, the state supreme court and so on and so forth i, I think it was a decisive factor yeah, yeah i, yeah, I yeah. think a lot of mainstream republicans just stayed home that day mm-hmm. and some even even pulled the lever for jones i remember looking at the the precinct results in mountain brook uh outside birmingham right it's like the kind of like capital of of like country club republicanism or at least it used to be right it still is yes yeah and jones crushed it in that precinct and i thought that was very very evocative of of, of what was going on right uh, but potentially with you know more or less any other republican there that those those votes swing back definitely and uh you know, like i said it was the allegations i think that really did roy moore in notwithstanding the fact that He's been a chief justice who twice flouted federal orders in order to do what he thought was right. There's never never any shortage of political intrigue, it seems like. <laughs> well, that was a year we had our three top state officials resign under a cloud Ooh. and in one case being convicted of corruption charges. The Speaker of the House, the Chief Justice, and the Governor. Yikes. It was an eventful year. And then, of course, ending in December with, with the election of Jones. Well, they, they elect a Democrat for the first time in forever. It's remarkable. So all these things considered, what are you expecting to see happen on Tuesday? I it, Everybody I've talked to, especially people who follow these things on a regular basis, think that Tommy Tuberville is going to win. And in some cases, they think he's going to crush Jeff Sessions. I don't know to what degree he'll crush but a lot of it will depend upon turnout, who can turn out their voters, sure, and then how many of the Republicans who voted for other candidates will support one or the other. Both of those scenarios are just remarkable to me. I mean, I, I mentioned before, like the, the whole idea of running for Senate again after you've already been attorney general, which I think people have written was kind of a, a job that Sessions had lusted after for a long time. Trying to come back to the Senate, I think, says a lot about how that went. But then to, to potentially lose... The comeback bid for this old seat is is a uh, potentially different 
flavor of humiliation. It would be a crushing end to what has been a very successful career. Eric, before I let you go, uh, one, one more question I'm wondering about. Are you a big football fan? Yes, I am. As a matter of fact, we've kind of gotten big into football just from living in the state. I've been living here about 20 years now. And uh, yeah, we're Saturdays, Saturday afternoons. We're in front of the TV set. Maybe not this year. I mean, hopefully, but we'll see. <laughs> yeah. That may be the only way we're watching if it happens at all. Right, right, right. Well, which which side of the uh, Auburn-Alabama divide do you, do you land on? Well, my wife grew up in a big pro Alabama family. And so we've been, we've been pulling for the Crimson Tide. Yep. That's the, that's how it works. Of course, it's it's easy to back a winner, you know? <laughs> yeah, that's, that's very true. That's very true. All right. Well, Eric, hey, I really appreciate you taking the time to join us. Really enjoyed the piece for Politico Magazine. Uh, very excited to to see what happens with this, this election, this odd and unusual cast of characters on Tuesday. Well, thank you for having me. All right. After hearing about that Alabama race, these interesting characters, the bizarre circumstances, everything that's going on there. I've got James Arkin here with me. I see you've got a nice beard keeping you company now. Yeah, well, you got to grow the quarantine beard. That's the rule. He's on our Senate campaign beat here at Politico. It's a little hot right now, I got to be honest, for for a quarantine beard. (laughs) You are not wrong. And James, you are going to zoom us way, way out and talk about the broader Senate landscape because it's looking like it's changing and it's going to have some major implications for the world we're living in in 2021 and beyond. The biggest thing to think about with the Senate map right now is just it is very much in play. Democrats feel very good about the position that they have put themselves in uh, just a few months before Election Day, and Republicans will readily admit that uh, the Senate landscape is challenging and and that the the majority is up for grabs uh, in 2020. Uh, I mean, it. I think we started at a place this cycle, uh, you know, a year and a half ago, uh, where we knew that Republicans were mostly going to be on defense, uh, defending their majority, which is 53-47 right now. But we also knew that most of those defensive states were red states, states that President Trump carried in 2016, uh, states that that, uh, Republicans flipped in 2014 to win the Senate majority. And so the question was always going to be how deep into Donald Trump territory, can Democrats push this uh, to to get to the number of states being in play up for grabs to, to put the majority in play? And the answer right now is very deep. Uh, they they have a, just a, a very broad landscape, uh, essentially, that, that they're playing in right now. Very quickly, what are what are kind of the four most enticing targets that Democrats have been looking at? You know, what what else has has popped on the map that, that you know, I'm, I'm sure you're, you're coloring in on your bulletin board? Unfortunately, my bulletin board is back at the office, not not here at home. But uh, they are Arizona, where Martha McSally was appointed after losing in 2018 and, and is running uh, to serve out the remainder of the term for uh, John McCain's former Senate seat. She's facing Mark Kelly, the Democrat there. Colorado, uh, where uh, Cory Gardner is up for a second term and is now running against John Hickenlooper, the former two-term Democratic governor. Uh, Maine, where Susan Collins is is running for a fifth term and is running against the State House Speaker Sarah Gideon, uh, likely running against her. Gideon still has a primary later this month. Uh, and then the fourth core is North Carolina, uh, which is going to be the most expensive state on the map. And Tom Tillis, uh, the first term senator running against Democrat Cal Huntingham. The the expansion of the map, the the number of seats that are now in play, um, is is just tied at the hip to. 
the, the falling fortunes of President Trump's reelection campaign over the last few months, right? The, this is all knotted together very tightly. Yeah, absolutely. I, I mean, you talk to any uh, consultant strategists, uh, party officials, uh, Republicans who are working on Senate races, and they will tell you President Trump's sliding poll numbers in the last couple of weeks and months are just an enormous problem for them across the Senate map. Uh, because like you said, uh, you know, states like Montana and Kansas, uh, even states like Iowa and Georgia, uh, places that President Trump won uh, to varying degrees in 2016, e- even if he's able to carry those states again, the real problem for Republicans here and, and the real gift for Democrats is just as you said, it's just a very broad map. And that means Republicans have to spend a lot of money in races where they would prefer not to have to spend a lot of money. That means fewer resources going into the core competitive states. Uh, so Democrats are potentially going to outspend Republicans in Arizona, in North Carolina, in Colorado, in Maine, and Republicans are going to have to be investing in Georgia and investing in Montana and investing in Iowa, and that means less money for those core competitive. So that's the way that you have to think about the Senate map is both the states that are likeliest to flip and likeliest to be competitive, and also states where it's just going to be costly, and that cost uh, you know, is, is a significant problem for Republicans right now. Uh, it's been remarkable to see just how much money <laughs> these Democratic candidates are raising. Um, a lot of it online, uh, the same way we saw Democrats running for House and Senate in 2018 raise a ton of money online. And yeah, obviously, raising the most money does not guarantee anything in in a Senate race, but it does erase, uh, you know, a lot of these candidates have kind of erased the incumbency advantage that often comes with being a senator running for re-election, that more people know who you are than your opponent, you have more resources than your opponent, all that sort of thing. That, that's not necessarily true in a lot of these states, especially in the core uh, the core ones. Yeah, absolutely. In, in the core states, Democrats have been outraising Republican incumbents for several quarters now, uh, going back into 2019. So they, at least financially, uh, they completely erased the incumbency advantage. Uh, you know, the Republicans still, they've been raising for four years while they were in office. And so they still had a cash advantage, certainly. But but yeah, you're absolutely right that the, the fundraising incumbency advantage gets uh, completely swamped. And one thing that that allows these challengers to do is go up on TV very early. And what that does is it gets politicians who are not very well known, do not have an established identity in their states, the, you know, outside of the core voters who pay attention to politics, uh, there are believe it or not, a number of voters who don't pay daily attention to politics. Uh, (laughs) But when you raise the amount of money that some of these Democrats are raising, you can be up on TV for a really long time, build your name ID, uh, you know, build an image with with voters. And you can do all of that before Republicans get on the airwaves to attack. Yeah. One uh, other thing, uh, kind of subplot to all this, you and our colleague Marianne Levine wrote this week about how Senate Republicans are in danger of losing a major portion of their their female members. Uh, there, there are just nine Republican women in the Senate. Is the, is the party concerned about about the, the the potential to be losing this this bench of prominent women that they've they've worked pretty hard to build up? Yeah, I think they are. Uh, I, I think um, you know, in talking to a lot of Republicans uh, as we were reporting that story out, I mean, like you said, they this is a high watermark for the party, uh, and it's something that McConnell, Mitch McConnell, the Majority Leader, has actually focused on pretty closely for a couple of cycles now is recruiting more women and trying to get more women represented in the Senate Republican conference. And they've had some success. I mean, January of 2017, there were five Republican women senators. Now Mm. there are nine. Uh, And a lot of that is because uh, when openings came up in Mississippi, in Georgia, in Arizona, where seats were vacant, uh, governors appointed women to these Senate seats and, and helped Republicans increase their numbers. Four of those women are in highly competitive races 
uh, you know, they're not in highly competitive races because they're women. They're in highly competitive races because it's an environment that is really, you know, leaning against Republicans right now. Um, and just all of these races are becoming very competitive. But, you know, I think it's something the party is focused on and, and cared a lot about. And I think it's entirely possible that they see those gains reversed either to a large degree or, or entirely reversed this year, depending on the yeah. way November goes. It's it's something that they're very concerned about and and hoping to to sort of be able to, you know, right the ship in some of those races. Yeah, absolutely. Well, James, I can't let you go without asking you to just handicap the whole the whole thing for me. Where where do you think the race for the Senate is headed at this point, based on all, all the reporting and the the conversations you're having? I, I think right now it's it's headed. I, I would say the last couple of months have everything has sort of fallen into place for Democrats to be able to put the chamber in play. Now, I don't think that that means they're going to flip it necessarily, but what I think it means is we started off this cycle. Republicans were favored, even maybe highly favored, to keep the Senate majority. And it was a pretty challenging path back for Democrats. And right now, it's they have several very clear paths back. They have recruited candidates and put themselves in a position to be highly competitive. And I think a lot of it is going to depend on where Donald Trump uh, and Joe Biden are and you know how much uh, separation some of these candidates can get in some of these highly competitive races. But I, I would say control for the Senate is absolutely a toss-up right now. And I think it's pretty clear that Democrats have an incredible amount of momentum behind them. And Republicans are going to need to see that momentum shifted or pared back significantly come fall, or they're going to be in serious danger of losing the majority. Yeah, absolutely. James Arkin, Senate reporter for Politico, owner of a extremely good-looking quarantine beard. Thank you for joining us. It's a pleasure to be here. Thank you for the beard compliment. <laughs> All right, everyone. Thank you so much for listening. That is our show. Our producer this week is Adrian Hurst. Our senior producer is Jenny Amund. And our executive producer is Irene Noguchi. Our illustrator is Bill Cookman. If you're listening on Apple Podcasts, do us a favor and leave a review. It helps new listeners find the show. We'll talk to you again next week. Once again, thank you so much for listening. <laughs>